Well, there are very, very many things we could disagree on. Uh, if, if you wanted to start a list of things we could disagree on, you could start just about anywhere these days. We are finding as a society there is no shortage of things to disagree on. I'm pretty sure one thing we would all agree on is that ideally you don't want to be in diapers. That's like just generally one of those things that um, at this particular point in time, you would choose not to be in diapers. Not just because being in diapers is like a bad fashion look, but because it means something is, something is not working the way it should. You've lost control of something. This is not working the way you want it to. B- being in a situation like that means, you well, know, it's something a little less than, than dignified, right? We, we like to think of ourselves as being in control. We like to think of ourselves as being put together. We like to think of ourselves as being presentable and independent and strong as those who have something to offer. Showing up somewhere in diapers kind of works against that. Jesus wants to instruct our hearts this morning in Matthew chapter 19. Knowing that our desire to be independent, to be strong, to be sufficient, to be put together, to have something to offer, knowing this desire is strong, Matthew lays out for us this reality, that those who have something to offer will get nothing from Jesus. But those who come with nothing Those who come as children simply to receive nothing to bring will find everything, the kingdom of God, eternal life. I want to show you this this morning, Matthew's argumentation from these verses under three headings, the first one of which is simple. Those who come with nothing get everything. These verses are simple. You've heard them lots of times. If you've been around church for any length of time, those who come with nothing get everything. Look at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them. Jesus is preaching. He's traveling. He's doing miracles. His confrontation with opponents. And in the middle of all of this, people are bringing children to him. And they're bringing children to him so that he would bless them. The disciples don't like that. They're trying to stop this. It's hindering progress, the progress of the kingdom. So the disciples rebuke the people. But, verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such, such as these, those like these children, to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Here's a question. When the children came to Jesus, what did they bring? Well, that's a trick question because the children didn't come to Jesus. Look again at verse 13. See, this is, this is so basic. The children were brought to Jesus. They are seen here in this text. Whatever age these children are, they are insufficient to even get themselves to Jesus. Not only do they not bring anything, they can't bring themselves. Others are bringing them to Jesus, which is exactly why the disciples are rebuking the people who are bringing them. These children can add nothing to Jesus, to his kingdom, to his cause, to the, to the momentum we've got in this movement. These children add nothing. That's why the disciples oppose, and that's why Jesus is for it. Why Jesus blesses them 
because he sees in these children an object lesson. Notice again, we noticed this a few weeks ago, but it's worth pointing out because we so often make these little mistakes when we read our Bible. The, the word does not say the kingdom belongs to children. Does not say that. It says it belongs to such as these. The children are an object lesson of what it's like, what those who are receiving the kingdom are like. They're like those who have nothing to offer, who bring nothing on their own. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this. This month, we're celebrating 17 years of marriage, which is exciting. If there's one thing I have learned over 17 years, it's that it takes me 17 years to learn things. Well, 17 years and counting. You, you often have to hear the same thing over and over and over before it actually sinks in. This is the same thing with Jesus' disciples. This gives me, this gives me like some courage. Okay, all right, we're not, we're not crazy. Because Jesus' disciples have to hear the same thing over and over. Do you remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he preached publicly in Matthew's gospel? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing. Blessed are those who come spiritually bankrupt and poverty-stricken because theirs is the kingdom. Those who inherit the kingdom are those who have nothing of their own. Jesus ends the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 by saying, blessed are the persecuted, those who suffer, those who can't stand up for themselves. Blessed are they because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even in our immediate context, we've heard this strain of humility running throughout this passage. Do you remember back at the beginning of chapter 18? Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom will be like one of these children who just accepts their place. They're just happy to be here. That's the greatest in the kingdom, the one who remembers how they got in and they live like it. So they're over themselves enough to care about others and go after others when they're suffering or when they're weak. You know who else the kingdom belongs to? It belongs to people who forgive others, which means you are humble because you're able to get over it that someone would dare to offend me. You're humble. Earlier on in chapter 19, Jesus said that some of his citizens are going to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Suffice it to say, eunuchs uh, on, on career day, they don't draw a crowd. Like this isn't what children aspire to grow up to be, right? Like this is, this is, a, this is a low rung. Nobody's like, hey, I met a eunuch. That's what I wanted to be since I was a kid. Like this is a low rung of society. But Jesus says, it's a high calling in my kingdom just to be the least, to be a servant. In fact, that's what he's going to say in chapter 20. He's going to go on to say again in chapter 20 in verse 16 that the first will be last and those who are last will be first. And then later on in chapter 20 in verses 26 and 27, he says this, it shall not be so among you. You won't be fighting to see who's greatest, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus is repeating the lesson, humility is the essential, the utmost important virtue for people who would enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples need to get this through their head. We need to get this through our head. You cannot get into the kingdom unless you can get over yourself. That's it. The type of person to whom the kingdom belongs is the type of person who other humans are quick to overlook and neglect and forget, and they're okay with that assessment. If you are over your big dealness and you come to Jesus simply to receive 
he will give you eternal life. Entrance into his kingdom. Sometimes the, the greatest act of humility is simply showing up, knowing that you have nothing to offer. Because intuitively, that strikes against everything in us, right? When we go somewhere, we want to bring something. We want to contribute something. We want to pitch in. We want to we show that we've got some value to add to this situation. But what it takes to get into the kingdom is to say, I've got nothing that I can give to Jesus, but I'm coming to him anyway because he's got everything he can give to me. When we come to Jesus, we, we come in diapers. We come with drool on our face or spit up or whatever. We come like a mess, unable to fix ourselves or clean ourselves or dignify ourselves. But these are the ones who inherit the kingdom. This is the heart of Christ. He delights to welcome those who come with nothing so that he could give them everything. This is not optional. This is the only way in. That's why Matthew wants to make this clear for us by contrasting the characters in this narrative. So he holds up the children first, and now he wants to contrast it with the rich young man who comes next. So we see, secondly, that those who come with everything get nothing. Those who come with everything get nothing. Verse 16, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. In other words, God has already told you the standard of good, a standard that's reflected him. You, you know what God requires. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So he said to Jesus, well, which ones? There were a lot of commandments. Right? By most totals, there's about 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Which, which ones? I want to make sure I'm doing this right. So Jesus cites for him the final, the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that all have to do with loving other people. So, so he says to him, you shall not murder don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he sums them all up with this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God's told you what's good, what's required. So live by these commands. And the young man said to him, verse 20, all these have kept. What do I still lack? He knows he's missing something, even though he has lived a good life. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect... Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? What made him sad? He had a lot of stuff. He had great possessions. I want to just offer some rapid-fire observations of this, this back and forth that happens with Jesus and this rich young man. First, it's important to just notice there's some universal principles. In a fallen world, there are universal principles that are at play. If Jesus is contrasting the children who bring nothing with someone who in the world's eyes has everything, of course it's going to be someone who's rich. Of course it's going to be someone who's young. And in most societies throughout all of history, of course it's going to be a man. And so this rich young man comes 
to Jesus, re- reflecting what this world and this world's culture's va- value is rich young man comes to Jesus seemingly with everything. So that if we were picking teams, like if, if we're going to play basketball after, you know, after church and we go out to the back court and you're looking around, you're a team captain, you're trying to figure out who you're going to pick, you're going to look and you're going to say, well, who's tall? Who, who looks athletic? There's going to be things that are going to stand out to you and you're going to try to build a team around that. The disciples are thinking this way. They're like, man, we got we to gotta pick our team carefully, team, team kingdom Jesus. So we're trying, to, we're trying to figure out who we're going to pick on our team. They don't want children in diapers. They want the tall guy. They want the strong guy. That's why they're making time for him. They're not complaining about this guy coming to Jesus. They were complaining about the children. That's just the way the world works. So that's why Matthew uses him as a contrast. But it's important to acknowledge that none of that makes this man a bad guy. He's got genuine spiritual concern. He's got the right questions. I want to inherit eternal life. I want to inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes to the right place. He brings his questions to Jesus. And he's lived with integrity. So so when he talks about keeping the law, he's not boastful. He's not arrogant. This is the same way the Apostle Paul talked about his life before coming to Christ. He said before the law was blameless. You can make good decisions. You can live a life of integrity. You can walk in obedience. That's what this man has done. Is it enough? We also need to acknowledge that what Jesus wants from him, when Jesus says, if you would be perfect, Jesus isn't setting up some impossible standard that's just for this man that's different than for the rest of us. This is the same thing. This word that Jesus uses for perfect is the same word he's already used to describe what we're supposed to be as disciples. In chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 48, this is what Jesus said. He said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The idea of perfection here is one of undivided loyalty, of faithfulness, of fidelity, of devotion, of being completely given over to a cause or to a person. This undivided, loyal heart, fully given to God, is what Jesus is calling this man to, which is also, frankly, what he calls you to. We also need to observe, just given the cultural climate, this is not a text about social justice or about the redistribution of wealth. It's not a universal call for Christians to abandon wealth. The poor are mentioned, and giving to them is a noble thing. You can store up treasures in heaven by giving to the poor, but the context, the thrust, the heart of the whole passage is how this individual man can make sure that he is following Jesus. How is this one supposed to know eternal life? There are many others in Jesus' life who were not called on to give up all of their wealth. Think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, a wealthy family that hosted Jesus. Think of the wealthy women who traveled with Jesus. Many of them are listed in Luke 8, who supported his ministry and financed it. Think of Joseph of Arimathea, who paid for Jesus' grave and took his body after he died. Think of Zacchaeus, who even in his repentance didn't give up all of his wealth, but half of it. What Jesus is doing is is addressing this man on how he is to find eternal life, which Jesus says is found by following me. Here's here's the observation I really want to make clear. The greatest command that Jesus gives to this guy is not get rid of your money. 
Getting rid of the money, getting rid of the possessions for this man is a means to an end. It's a step in the direction of what's necessary so that he can leave and come follow Jesus. Jesus, what he's really after from this man is a life of discipleship. He wants his whole life, his whole heart, fully devoted. So maybe you could picture... Um, if, if this man, just to change the scenario up, to get a somewhat familiar image out of our head and maybe replace it with a new image for a moment, if, if this man was somehow traveling on the, the cargo ship called the present world, and as he's traveling, the cargo ship breaks up, but he, unlike others who fall into the water and die, manages to grab onto some of the boards and a little bit of the cargo that was left over, and he's got it to himself. The cargo is valuable for as long as he lives, but here he is floating in the ocean. He's got his planks that he's holding onto. He's, he's got the little bit of wealth from this world left over, and now here comes Jesus with a ship. He can pick him up and save him and bring him to the dry land, bring him to safety called eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. And this man says, I want to get on your ship. And Jesus says, if you want to get on my ship, you got to get off your boards. And he says, no, I want my boards. Leaving the boards won't save him. Getting on the ship is what's going to save him. Coming and following Jesus is where there's eternal life. But the boards and the little bit of wealth that he has, the little bit of cargo that's going to go down with him to death is what he's clinging to instead. This man's trying to find a way to smuggle his broken up boards and sinking treasure onto Jesus' ship. And Jesus says, just leave it and come. I wonder if you can identify. I know that I can. Not because I'm rich, because I'm certainly not. And not because I'm young, because I'm not that anymore either. But because all of us have in us an impulse to want to cling on to the little of what we do have. Especially in days like this where it feels like we have no control over anything, if there's anything we do feel like we have control over, we desperately want to cling to that. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's respectability. Maybe it's like this guy, wealth. And you're just holding on to it. And you don't want to give over the reins. You don't want to give over control. So you're holding back from following Jesus. I know of no better way to describe this battle, this tension and what's at stake than the way C.S. Lewis describes it for us. So I'm going to read from Lewis. It's an extended quote here. He says this. He describes our situation, our heart, I think, rightly. He says, our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. Right? That's, that's why, that's why we, when we read this passage, we're so quick to try to figure out why Jesus wanted that of him to make sure we don't fit into that category so we don't have to give up our money. That was just for that guy. We're trying to figure out the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We approve of an income tax in principle. In principle. We make our returns truthfully. We don't lie, right? We, we do our tax returns. We, we, we file our taxes. But we dread a rise in the tax. We're very careful to pay no more than is necessary. And we hope, we very ardently hope, that after we've paid it, there will be still enough to live on. 
And, and we interact with God like this, like, God, I hope you don't take any more from me. I'm just going to hold on to this little bit. You've already taken a bunch. It's getting kind of scary. Don't take any more. And we live in this relationship with God this way. But C.S. Lewis goes on. He says this, there's no parallel. There's no parallel to paying taxes and living on the remainder. For it's not so much of our time, or so much of our attention that God demands. It's not even all of our time or all of our attention. It is ourselves. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need your house. He doesn't need your money. He can make money easier than Justin Trudeau. He does not need what you have, but he wants you. He wants you. And then whatever happens next, happens. But when you give yourself to him, you acknowledge that your story is now his to write. That not just your stuff, but you, your very self, is his to do with however he pleases, whatever he wants. That's the life of discipleship that Jesus is calling this man to. Lewis reflects again. He goes on. How should we respond? He says, let us make up our minds to it. There will be nothing of our own. Nothing that's mine. Nothing left to live on. No ordinary life. I do not mean that each of us will necessarily be called to be a martyr or an ascetic. We're not all called to give up our wealth. That's as may be. It may be, may not be. That's different for each of us. For some, nobody knows which, the Christian life will include much leisure many occupations we naturally like, but these will be received from God's hands. It's not because we fought for it ourselves or we hung on to it. It's because God gave it to us. In a perfect Christian, a fully devoted Christian, they, these blessings, these leisures, would be as much a part of his religion, his service, as his hardest duties. And his feasts would be as Christian as his fasts. As much an act of worship, what, we, what cannot be admitted, what, we must, what must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy is the idea of something that is our own. Some area in which we are to be out of school on which God has no claim. If you're living like you can have Jesus but keep some of your stuff some of your life, some of your relationships to yourself, you will get nothing from him. You have a choice. Give him your life, your very self, with all that you have, or keep it. Pretend like you're something Pretend like you have something to offer him, but then receive nothing from him. Those who give him everything, who give him ourselves, we do so in the hope of eternal life. But as the text is going to go on, Peter's going to describe his scenario. Hey, look, we've already given up everything. What's there for us? Jesus is going to lay out for them and for us as well that it's not simply for the next life that we hope in Christ. It's also for this life as well. There are rewards to be had here. So thirdly, here's the last heading. It's those who come with nothing, find something, in other nothings. 
We're going to find something, but it's going to be in other nothings, in other people. Let's, let's try to get there. Verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, he, he explains the whole thing to them again. Truly, I say to you, this is a serious statement. And then again, at the beginning of verse 24, again, I say to you, he's trying to make the principle so clear to them that they can't miss it. He says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And he gives them this image to get stuck in your head. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who can be saved? The, the rich are supposed to be the ones who are blessed by God in the first place. Isn't that why they're rich? So if they can't get in, then the, if the ones who have something can't get in, then what about the rest of us who have nothing? They're still missing the point. Jesus is trying to make clear. Verse 26, so he tries to state it as plainly as possible. He said, it is impossible with you. You've got nothing. You don't have what's necessary to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a specific and unique promise given to these apostles who were the first to hope in Christ to leave their fishing nets and leave their servants and leave their lives and careers and homes and towns to come and to follow Jesus, that they will sit reigning with Jesus, judging over the 12 tribes of Israel. But it's important that in thinking about that image, you don't miss the logic of this passage. It's impossible for anyone to be saved as long as they think they're sufficient in themselves. And there's going to be no one in the world more tempted to think they're sufficient in themselves than the rich and the powerful and the popular. It's natural for the rich to have a harder time accepting that they're nothing because everything in this world tells them that they're something. Sometimes it's hard for people who grow up in Christian homes and never really sin all that bad. They're, they're kind of like this rich young man and they make good decisions and they live a decent life. It's hard to accept that they need Jesus just as much as the sinner down the road who's lived every day of his life for himself. It's hard. It's impossible. Did you ever reflect on the image of a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle? Like, it's been a while since I've been at the zoo, but camels are pretty big. I remember one time, this is a random note about camels. One time I saw a camel spit on someone. Apparently that's normal. But then I, I found out that it's actually not spit, it's vomit. And that made it that much more gross. I don't know why I'm telling you that, except to say this. I think needles were bigger back then, but camels were still the same size. Camels are still big. So even the eye of a needle, even if you say it was a little bit bigger back then, there's no way you can fit a camel through the eye of a needle. That's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. It is impossible. What would it take for you to be saved with you? It is impossible. What did it take for you to be saved? It took almighty God to take on flesh and to come on your behalf 
and fulfill the law that he authored. The demands that he made of you, he had to now come and perform. And the price that was owed because you failed, he had to come and pay. You had nothing to give, no righteousness of your own to contribute. You had nothing to pay off your debt, no way to take the wrath of God, but Jesus, who fulfilled the demands of the law, took the curse on himself. This was impossible for you. He took the wrath of God in those hours he hung on the cross so that he could say it is finished and your debt was eternally paid. What does it take for you to be saved? It takes death and hell to be overthrown, sin and Satan to be defeated, the enemies of God to be conquered. You can't do that. But Jesus did that for you. How many moving parts in your own particular life? Just think of your life. How many millions, trillions of moving parts did it take for you to be in the right place at the right time with the right frame of mind, hearing the right message of the gospel? And the miraculous power of the Spirit worked in your heart to take you who were dead and make you alive. Some of you who were like this rich young man who hadn't done a whole lot wrong and it is impossible for you to be saved because you think you're something, but God humbled you. That's amazing. That's a miracle. It's supposed to produce thankfulness and joy. The disciples give up everything to follow him. They receive everything from Jesus. Even right now, there are rewards. Jesus says in verse 29, everyone who's left Houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Friends, listen, I just want to take the last few minutes that we have right now, and we've got to sit down on this verse together for a few minutes. We need to put it on the table and feast on this verse for a few minutes. We need to be nourished by it because it is so important in this particular moment in the life of our church to contemplate what this verse means for us. First of all, as we get set to gather together again, God willing, in the next few weeks, and meet face to face and worship God together in person, you need to realize the gift that you've been given by Jesus in average, ordinary church members. The people you are going to see when you come a couple Sundays from now are the gift of Jesus to you, your reward, your comfort, your consolation, your pride. If I came home late from work one day and Stace made dinner for me, she had, she had to go out somewhere and she made dinner for me because she knew I wasn't going to be able to make anything for myself. So she made dinner and left it with a note and said, here, I, I made you dinner. I provided for you because you're pathetic. And I would say, amen, amen. I would be pretty dumb not to eat that food that someone had provided for me and left for me knowing that I would need that food. That would be pretty dumb, right? Jesus has left you a plate of dinner in your fellow church. Now, don't come and actually eat them. But understand, the point is simply this. Jesus knew that hardships were coming for you. He knew. He knew that suffering was coming. He knew that you would experience loss in this life as you live to follow him. He knew that. And so to prepare for you, to cover you, to care for you, he provided you, brothers and sisters, in your local church. 
That's the provision that's been laid out, prepared and laid out for you. You are a fool if you do not come ready to participate, eager to be blessed by pursuing one another in fellowship. Are there people in the church who know you? Are you making ways for people to know you so that when you are in need, they will care for you? This is the provision of Christ for you. But, but second, we've got to flip it around as well, right? Second, as we get set to come back together, realize that you have been given as a gift to them as well. <laughs> so now, again, I'm going to try to use the image a little bit differently. If I came home and I had the kids with me and, and Stace said, hey, I made dinner for you and the kids, and then I ate all the food, like all of it, and I saved none for my children, like that would be pretty rude, Right? There's provision been made for others. The provision that's been made for others, for your brothers and sisters, the hundredfold reward of brothers and sisters for them includes you. Which means if Jesus' promise is going to be proved true for them, it will be proved true for them as you care for them. Invest in them. Speak to them, know them. There are brothers and sisters who are going to be coming when we gather again, who are going to be coming, who have no one else to weep with them, no one else to rejoice with them, no one else to hear them or to counsel them or to pray with them or just to sit and listen to them and what the past year of their life has been like. They've got no one else, but Jesus has given you to them as a gift for this moment. So do not come to church ready to simply receive from others, but come ready to be the gift of Christ to others as well. When the option to come back in person comes, my friends, realize that you don't simply have the privilege of making your own decisions because your life is not your own. You've been purchased with a price and given to your brothers and sisters as Christ's mercy to them. Man, that feels like a lot, right? You're asking a lot of me. I don't feel like I have anything to offer. I got nothing to give these people. What am I supposed to do to help them? You see? You see, you're coming with nothing, which means you're exactly the type of person that Jesus is ready to use. Because many who are first will be last, and the last first. You don't have to actually wear diapers. In fact, I really hope when we do come back, you don't wear diapers, unless you're a child, in which case do wear diapers. That'd be great. But what I mean is, is simply this. We don't we need an outward display of your dependence, of your nothingness, of your insufficiency. It's a heart posture. Simply acknowledging that the way in is the way we live once we're in, which is we have nothing in Christ, is everything. And if we come to him with nothing, believing in his grace and his sufficiency, we will not only receive everything in the promise of eternal life in the kingdom, we'll receive brothers and sisters and will likewise be given to them. May God make us this kind of community in days and weeks to come. Let's pray.